This is C3 ethanol intoxication. I think somebody needs to go home. I'm, I'm not that drunk, sir. And as you know by now, C3 stands for... Comprehensive core curriculum. Comprehensive core curriculum. It is comprehensive. We're covering core content, and it is a curriculum that you can use for learning emergency medicine. And today, Dr. Mel Herbert and I are going to talk about drunk people. No, mother, I have not been drinking. No. We love drunk people. No, these two men, they poured a whole bottle of bourbon into me. <laughs> well, we sure do see a lot of them. <laughs> we see a lot. We don't necessarily love it that much, but yeah, this is a really great topic. It's bread and butter. You see these patients all the time. And they're actually quite dangerous. They're actually very high risk. And there's some pearls that we're going to drop along the way to help you not make the mistakes that I have made many times with these patients. These are high risk people. We should credit the Corpendium chapter authors, Kyle Rattray and Scott Phillips. The section editors are Mike Moss and Mike Durock. And then, of course, the associate editor is Sean Nort, who is also our peer reviewer for this episode. Nort! Thank you, Dr. Nort, for all you do in the toxicology world on MRAP. You're a good man. I don't care what they say. <laughs> Chapter 1. Approach to critical patient and key concepts. So as we do in Corpendium, we like to start out by talking about the approach to the critical patient. That is the thing that you most need to know when that patient rolls in. You don't want to scroll through a whole bunch of pathophysiology. No, it's tell me what to do right now with this crashing patient. And Mel, to be honest, it's pretty rare that you get a patient who's just intoxicated, who needs their ABCs addressed, but it does happen, right? Absolutely. I mean, particularly with new drinkers in particular. So you can drink so much that you can lose your airwave reflexes. You can stop breathing. You can even depress your myocardium to the point where you're in shock. And you hear this all the time with sort of rock stars who chug like a gigantic bottle of vodka at the end of a show. And they basically die from pure alcohol ingestion. So this does happen. So be ready for it. All of those things can be affected. Airway, yes, you might have to tube them. Breathing, you might have to breathe from circulation. You might have to give them fluids. Sometimes you have to give them presses. Top things to look out for. Hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia. Just tell us about hypoglycemia. That's a big one, right? Yeah, it is the most common cause of altered mental status in intoxicated patients. And it's really sort of like the one thing that you have to check when someone you think that they're just intoxicated, but you're not sure. It's very easy for a patient who is a chronic user of alcohol to become hypoglycemic. Think about their liver disease. Think about their glycogen storage. They don't have the ability necessarily to raise their blood glucose level. And furthermore, they've probably been neglecting eating a healthy, well-rounded diet. So hypoglycemia is very, very common and is one of the things that we should pretty much check on anyone intoxicated in the emergency department. Exposure. And then the next big one is exposure, a full trauma evaluation. There's two ways, I think, to really screw this up. One is missing the hypoglycemia and having them sit around and kill brain cells for hours and hours. And the other one is to miss bad things. And it's really easy to do to say, this person's just intoxicated, put them in the corner come back six hours later and they're dead from this acute subdural or come back eight hours later and you realize that they've got a femur fracture or something else. So repeat evaluation, looking for trauma, looking for occult trauma. As they're waking up, looking again, looking again, it is a great analgesic. Alcohol is a spectacular analgesic at high levels. Some of the key concepts to remember 
Alcohol and trauma really do go together. Like you said, alcohol is involved in nearly half of all trauma-related deaths. And so have a low threshold for imaging, right? If you see blood on their face or swelling somewhere, abrasions, just have a low threshold for getting imaging because they may not be able to really tell you exactly what happened. And like you said, you don't want them sitting there for hours with a head bleed. You're going back for your serial exams. So oh, they're not really uh, waking up like I would have expected. Whoops. That's because they got a big subdural hemorrhage. Another key concept that we should mention is the typical metabolism rate for alcohol. And if you have a good method for this, Mel, you could let me know. I know that there is a range here. According to the Corpendium chapter, it's 15 to 30 milligrams per deciliter per hour. That's a wide range. Some people are going to be faster. Some people are going to be on the slower end. I just remember 20 an hour. So my quick way of doing that is that's five hours for every 100 milligrams per deciliter, which is a very long time to metabolize. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's a good sort of baseline, about 20 per hour. So like you say, if you've got somebody with a really high alcohol level, they're really, really intoxicated. They might be sitting in your emergency department for 10 hours, 15 hours before they get to the point where they're clinically sober enough to leave. So this is pretty slow metabolism. Right. And you also don't want to sit there and wait for them to metabolize so much that they're then withdrawing. And you get into finding that perfect time where you discharge them before they start to withdraw. That's right. And if you use a lot of alcohol a lot of the time, you can start withdrawing at levels that would kill other people. You can be withdrawing when your blood alcohol is 200 milligrams per deciliter. And that would kill the average college student. We should also mention that this is assuming that for some reason you got a blood alcohol level. We will talk about this in greater detail in an upcoming chapter, but most of the time you're not even getting this number. It's just sort of bread and butter knowledge to know the rate of metabolism, so we put it right up front. Chapter 2. Diagnosis. How do we diagnose somebody with acute alcohol intoxication? You go to any bar or you go to college and you learn about these things. And so there's lots of obviously different ways people present. Some people get very sleepy. Some people get very happy. I love you, man. All right, I love you too. Go to sleep. Some people get very angry. Again, this is very variable. There are people who develop such extraordinary tolerance to alcohol. They can be walking around talking completely fine at 400. In fact, start to withdraw when they get close to three or 400. But for the average human being, over 400 is associated with death. Lots of the time. But again, chronic alcoholism, it is stunning to me. I mean, we used to keep record books back in the day when we were allowed to do stupid things like that. And we would have people with 800 or even 1,000 and still be alive. So, you know, very variable here. But these are ballpark numbers that you could sort of use. But mostly the most important thing is nothing to do with their blood alcohol concentration. It's just looking at them. Where are they clinically? Are they sick and dying and need to be intubated? Or are they just kind of sleepy and need to be watched in the corner? Let's talk about some of the things that are important to note on history. I feel like oftentimes they just tell you that they've been drinking. The part that you can't believe is the number of drinks. When they come in (laughs) and they're hammered, you're like, how much did you have? Just a couple beers. How much would you say that you drank? About this much. Mr. Thornhill, it is my opinion that you are definitely intoxicated. Okay. What's your correction number? Everybody has a correction number. (laughs) Is yours two? Is it three? Whatever they tell you, multiply by three. Yeah, it's a multiplication factor. Yeah, other things that are important to note, though, are, is this their typical amount that they drink every day? How much do they drink every day? 
And what other substances have they used? Because some of them really can create a problem when mixed with alcohol, right, Mel? Yeah, and the classic one, particularly sort of in the 90s, was cocaine. And you can get this cocaethylene complex, which basically produces a long-acting form of cocaine. So they can come in hours and hours and hours after they did the cocaine with chest pain and spasm and all the stuff, and it's from this long-acting form of cocaine. The other one that the kids like to do is lots of energy drinks. And this is a problem because normally if you drink too much, you get sleepy and you stop drinking. But when you're ingesting sort of Red Bull and alcohol, these kids can get to really high alcohol levels because they have got this stimulant and they're partying more and more and drinking more and more. And then they collapse and they have these huge alcohol levels. So that combination is particularly lethal on college campuses. And there are creative, I guess, ways of ingesting alcohol. Not everyone drinks it through their mouth. I guess. I don't know why you would do this, but there's something called butt shots or butt chugging. And um, Mel, I'm going to leave it to you to describe what that is. <laughs> so apparently this has been around for thousands of years. Somebody way back in Egypt or wherever realized that uh, you could basically give yourself a rectal enema of alcohol and get past that first pass metabolism and get really high levels really fast. And apparently it's been a thing for a long time. And it's back and it's on college campuses. And it can be associated with like sudden death because, you know, you get a really high level very fast. It can be associated with things like proctitis. It's been associated in case reports with perforation of the colon. There's lots of great things about this, uh, Jess, that you don't want to know about. Now, there's another one I'm really interested in because there's this sort of meme on the internet about using tampons, like taking vodka and uh, soaking the tampon in vodka so that when you go to school... You can get a little buzz, but nobody can smell alcohol on your breath. A number of toxicologists say this doesn't seem like a real thing because there's not enough volume there and the tampon's not going to give up that fluid very easily. So it's not clear if this is a real thing. So if you've done this or know somebody that's done this, why don't you write in and tell us? Dear Emrah, I've had the pleasure. Oh no, that doesn't work. Back, 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 back. Unfortunately, I have nothing to say about that. Okay, so I think what's important here in this diagnosis section is that you can't anchor on alcohol intoxication as the explanation for why they're in the emergency department. They may not be able to give you a clear explanation of what's going on with them. They might have other complaints. They might have trauma. They might have had a stroke. It can be challenging in these patients, and that's why the serial exam is very important. So let me shout out to the new peeps in the emergency department. If you're new to emergency medicine, do not make the mistake that every one of your forebears has done. And that is, this person's just drunk. Alcohol is a cause of altered mental status, but Jess just went over a whole bunch of other things that also can cause altered mental status that could be occurring at the same time or just sort of, uh, they're players in the same street. So just because somebody is intoxicated doesn't mean that they haven't had bad head trauma, doesn't mean that they don't have meningitis, doesn't mean that they're septic or have something else going on. So be very afraid of just making the diagnosis of intoxicated and turning your brain off. When you have a person who has altered mental status and is intoxicated, you should be even more anxious because this is a chance for you to miss something else. You've got to be really anal retentive and go back and check these people over and over again and think about what else could be going on here. Particularly for the chronic drinker, they are immune suppressed and they're very prone to trauma. So they are a very high-risk group. Don't just say drunk, I can turn my brain off and not worry about them anymore. You should say drunk, very high-risk case. And it's really easy to do sort of a cursory exam and just say, oh, I'll just check on them again in a little bit and call it a day. 
You actually have to do an exam. You actually have to look at the patient. Exposure is actually really key here. And I know it can be unpleasant at times to take off a patient's shoes and socks, but if you're not actually looking at them, you don't know if they have, for example, a diabetic foot ulcer that is now necrotizing and they're altered and they happen to maybe be intoxicated as well, but they have a necrotizing soft tissue infection. I mean, I think we've all seen that M&M in particular, and if it hasn't happened to us personally. So you're right. You have to be very careful, and doing just a cursory hallway exam on them is not enough. Every M&M in every residency program in every part of the world has the alcoholic that had a subdural that wasn't diagnosed for 12 hours, or the alcoholic that had necrotizing fasciitis, which wasn't diagnosed for 12 hours, and could have been if you had have done that first initial exam. Now, let's go back to the blood alcohol level because it's actually not something that we often check at all. The blood alcohol concentration is not the number that allows you to safely discharge a patient. That is a clinical assessment. And so we don't often get it because it's not often useful. So Mel, when would you think about getting a blood alcohol level? This has been controversial forever. The purists would say it's never, ever, ever helpful. I've got somebody who's altered and I get a blood alcohol level and it's 150. What do I do with that? Do I stop? Okay, therefore no further workup required. This is what's causing their altered mental status. No, you have to go and do more things. Maybe there's a scenario where you're like the person's altered. I really think that it's alcohol ingestion and I get the blood alcohol and it's zero. Oh my gosh, this has got to be something else. But I don't think it's very useful. Do I use it to help me decide when to send the patient home? No, you should decide whether they can go home on the basis of what they look like clinically. There might be an argument for working out how long they might be in the emergency department. So this alcohol level is really high. I can't find anything else wrong. And it's 300. This person's going to be here for a long time. Maybe they even need to get moved out of the emergency department to an observation area. Maybe you could use it that way. But mostly, I don't think it's a particularly useful test. It's fun when it's high. You know, you're like, oh, look, this is 350. But it's actually not useful clinically. Big still little reviews. Well, there are always two sides to every story. And as adamant as some emergency clinicians are about not getting alcohol levels on patients that are intoxicated or appear to be intoxicated, some see it differently, especially a lot of our colleagues in toxicology. And so, Sean, I just wanted to open up this discussion with you and highlight some of the reasons why you don't feel the same way. You feel that we should probably be getting more alcohol levels than we do. Yeah, I do. And I agree it's controversial. And I'd say at best, you should be judicious with your ethanol levels. But I'll say for me as a toxicologist, and I would think most of my toxicology colleagues agree. Now, of course, I'm looking through the lens as a toxicologist. So I've been consulted on the delayed toxic alcohols that were thought to be ethanols that no one got a level. But I've been in the audience of many, too many M&Ms of subdural hematomas, meningococcemia, traumas, And it's always the same scenario, right? It's serial exams that were probably done, but not documented, or maybe not done. And then it was a busy shift. And then there is always a devastating outcome. So you're talking a bit about reality here. You're you're talking about the fact that in a real world situation, patients do sit for a long time. Checks do get delayed because there's another critical patient that comes in during that time when the neuro check was supposed to happen. And so it's almost a safeguard to upfront know that level. It is. And I think about it as a 25-year-old female with lower abdominal pain. Would I wait 6 to 12 hours with acute onset abdominal pain to find out if she's pregnant? I'm always looking for a branch point. 
Now, I agree, the vast majority are going to have ethanol levels that are going to be high and going to be consistent with what you thought. But I will tell you, if you do this more routinely, you're going to pick up every couple of years or so a potentially devastating outcome much earlier. So, Sean, what do you say to the argument that everyone gives that once that level is measured, that you can't make it go away? I mean, it just it can prevent you from discharging the patient unless it's below a certain level. You don't really agree with that. Tell me why. I don't. So the argument that, hey, now I can't discharge them until the level's less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. And it's like, well, that's not correct. I mean, there's people stumbling down the street in Vegas, right, who have levels higher than that, and they're not being brought into the hospital or being arrested or anything. But what's most important And we know that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to assess how drunk somebody is without getting a level if they're intoxicated. We are excellent at assessing clinical sobriety. So that is the key. Even if that level is 100, if you document well clinical sobriety and ideally have a nurse or if you work with residents or a physician assistant or an NP, if you have multiple people who agree with your assessment, get that on the chart because there's something known as the Mellonby effect. It's named after Dr. Mellenby. And this is the phenomenon that if your level is 200 milligrams to deciliter on the absorptive, meaning you're still absorbing alcohol, you're a much drunker if you peak at 350 and then come back on the elimination phase to 200, you are not as drunk at that 200 on the back half as you are on the front half. And that is why people can still have an elevated level and be clinically sober. So that is really for me If I have the level, which I do get because often it will change my therapy, and then I will do that assessment and document well clinical sobriety, I think that you can feel very comfortable in discharging that person. That's so interesting that you can assess how sober someone is and document that, but you really can't assess how intoxicated they are. That is really, really important take-home message, I think. Well, that is an important counterpoint, and... I don't think there's a right answer. I certainly believe that there are exceptions to every rule. And if you're very dogmatic about this, you can really get into trouble. I've certainly had cases where knowing that that alcohol level was low early on, for example, really accelerated my workup in finding a subdural, for example. And I've also had the opposite, where having that alcohol being very high has helped make me a little more judicious in my management and a little more responsible with my stewardship of resources. So I think it can go both ways. It's the dogmatic approach, I think, that's the most dangerous one. And so thanks so much, Sean. That's very, very helpful. Thank you, Stuart. And I agree with everything that you said right at the end. Be very judicious with it. No dogma here. Chapter 3, Treatment. Now let's talk about the treatment of the patient who is intoxicated on ethanol. The treatment really depends on what's going on with them, right? I mean... It's a completely different conversation to talk about intubating someone who's not protecting their airway versus the guy in the hallway who just needs to sit there for a few hours and eat a turkey sandwich, right? I mean, what do you think is the big picture message here? I think the big picture message is that it's a huge spectrum, just like you said, from you really don't need to do anything. This is a sort of a depressant, but most people are just going to be sleepy and you just watch them and they'll be fine and they'll wake up and then they go home versus the person who's really severely intoxicated where they need everything done. They need to be intubated. They need the full uh, resuscitation and workup. But the key thing again is if they're that drunk that you're you know, intubating them and uh, doing lots of things to them, 
thinking constantly like what else could be going on? What else could be going on? Because a lot of the time they're that sick because there is something else going on. They are intoxicated, but they also fell over and cracked their head and they're bleeding into their brain. So airway, breathing, circulation, put in the IVs, treat them like a trauma, really think that there's something else going on. This is not just pure intoxication. You know, one thing that I find comes up recurrently with my residents is a hesitancy about doing a CT head on intoxicated patients. And I find that if there's really any sign of trauma, then just get the head CT. Don't feel bad. You're not going to be a hero today because you spared them one CT scan. They're not going to die from brain cancer from the CT scan you ordered today. Go ahead and get it because that patient is at such high risk for having a subdural or really any kind of intracranial hemorrhage, and you don't want to miss it. So don't feel bad. I know they've had a lot. They've probably, if it's a person who's in your emergency department every other night, they've had a lot of head CTs, but it's okay. You don't have to feel bad about ordering one more as long as you have a reason to do so. These patients are at really high risk for intracranial bleeds. That's just the, they've got a coagulopathy. They're falling down a lot. Uh, They've got brain shrinkage, so they've got tension on those vessels. And as Billy Mallon said, drunk people get punched in the head a lot. You know, they are high risk, so don't feel bad for that group of patients. This is an issue that's bigger than you. Treatment. When it comes to treatment, honestly, there's not going to be a ton here. They're usually going to be able to take PO fluids. If for some reason they're just so intoxicated and they look dehydrated, then go ahead and give them some IV fluids. Check the glucose, and if they need sugar, then go ahead and give that. And now, Mel, I would like to talk about the controversial... Banana bag. Ah, the banana bag. It used to be so easy back in the day. All of these patients, whether you're a little bit drunk or really drunk, got a banana bag. And a banana bag was some sort of glucose-containing fluid with some thiamine and folate and multivitamins in there and maybe some mag. And every time they came in, they got this. And you felt good because you were giving them some glucose so they weren't going to become hypoglycemic. You were giving them some thiamine so that they wouldn't get Wernicke's. You were giving all these multivitamins because they haven't had anything to eat in months to years and uh, they are peeing out mag, so you're replacing it. So this was a really great thing, except when you look at the evidence, there's very little evidence that we should be doing any of this. And many toxicologists have said, this is just a really stupid thing to do. And they'll go through each of the things that's in there saying why it's stupid and when it's been studied, it doesn't work. If you need to give thiamine to somebody, It's because they've got Wernicke's and you need to give 10 times the dose that you'd put in a normal banana bag. And folate, when you look at these patients, they never need folate. My argument against that is maybe they don't need folate and multivitamins because we've given them so many over the years that we've filled them up again. I don't know. What do you think? What happens in all the places you've worked over the years? Yeah, some people do and some people don't. I, I can certainly understand the argument for not doing it because if there are deficiencies, these are chronic deficiencies that are not just going to be fixed by a single dose of an IV infusion. And so what are you really accomplishing here? And then some of the studies have shown that they're actually not deficient in the things that we think that they are deficient in. But what is the downside, right? Like, am I going to go yell at a resident for ordering a banana bag. No, I also don't yell at residents, but I'm not going to be mad at you if you order a banana bag because they're fairly cheap. I mean, this is not like a really like expensive, risky intervention. No, it's some fluids and some vitamins. So eh, I don't, I personally don't tend to do this, but I'm not mad at you if you do. Yeah, I think that's logical. And maybe just look through their chart. If they've had seven banana bags in the last seven days, they probably don't need an eighth. But you're right. It's not that expensive. I guess you could argue that maybe 
somebody could have a reaction to this, but I've never really heard of somebody having anaphylaxis to their banana bag. So uh, one of those things, I'm not going to die on that hill either. No, me neither. Oh, that's enough for that. And then other things that might help the patient symptomatically. I think we've all seen the patient who like partied really hard over the weekend and now has a little bit of GI distress and nausea. Basically, they come in because they have a bad hangover. It's like their symptoms at presentation. Oh, bad headache. I feel nausea. My stomach hurts. I drank a lot this weekend. Dude, you have a hangover. Like there's not an ICD-10 code for that. You have a hangover. But what can we do for them, Mel? There's some things we could do to help them feel better. Just the usual, it's supportive care, right? You know, give them some fluids, fill up the tank, give them some antiemetics, maybe give them a proton pump inhibitor, give them a turkey sandwich, give them a talking <laughs> to, stern talking to. There is actually a drug, this is very interesting, I didn't know this, there's a drug in Europe called metadoxine. Metadoxine, again, anybody in Europe that uses Apparently, um, there's some studies that suggest that you can give this drug during the acute intoxication phase, and it makes them metabolize their alcohol much quicker. I have never used this. It's not FDA approved in the US, but uh, I don't even know if it would be that useful. If it got you out of the emergency department in four hours instead of five hours, would that be useful? I don't know. But Europeans, tell us about this thing. Chapter four, disposition. When it comes to the disposition of patients who are intoxicated on alcohol, I think this is an area with some nuance that deserves some discussion. We'll do the easy one first. The easy ones. You admit people who have super high alcohol concentrations that are just going to basically be OBS in your ED for like two days, right? You could admit them. Or if you intubated them or if they've got some other issue going on like pancreatitis. Okay, those are easy. The hard ones. Let's talk about when you can send the patient home. This is when it's actually tricky, right? It doesn't come down to a number. It comes down to what factors for you, Mel? Well, there's two types of patients, okay? This is the way I think about it. There's the patient who is just sort of drunk and this is a bit of a one-off. And in those patients, basically, I just want to make sure that they become awake, alert, they know who they are, they know where they are, they have a plan, they can eat, they can drink, they're clinically sober. That doesn't mean that their alcohol necessarily is zero, but they're clinically sober. I'm not worried that they're going to walk outside and walk in front of a bus. They're back to, you know, normal, as normal is. But that's the easy one, right? The hard one is the person who drinks all the time, who uh, starts to withdraw when their alcohol gets down to 200. That's the difficult disposition because if you wait for them to get too low, they actually will start withdrawing and then you have to go down a whole nother pathway. And so sometimes with these patients that, you know, and every emergency department has them, you want them to be sober enough to have some fluids, to have the sandwich, and then to go back to their life before they start withdrawing. And maybe some people outside the US or outside sort of centers where they have really great follow-up don't understand this concept, but in county hospitals throughout the US, there's not capacity to send all of these patients to rehab or to detox centers where there is in other countries. You would go straight from the emergency department to a detox center. That doesn't happen here. There's often three-month, six-month wait time. So I'll tell you a sort of a funny story. We used to have one attending that would tell patients who came in drunk and they were about to send them home, stop drinking, stop drinking, you're going to die, alcohol's going to kill you, stop drinking. Mm -hmm. And then we had this other attending who would get so mad at that attending saying, if this person stops drinking, they will die of withdrawal. So it's, you know, go to rehab and don't say anything about stop drinking because if they stop drinking, they will die and come back to the emergency department. So this is a very difficult sociological issue 
But one, again, if you're a junior learner, to talk about with your attendings about how do you deal with that particular scenario with a chronic alcoholic that comes in, you've got to get them out before they withdraw. But that sounds like kind of a weird thing that this person's going home kind of drunkish. And also, what are those patients' goals? Are they going to get discharged and immediately start drinking again? Okay, I don't think that's necessarily a good life choice, but that's what they're going to do, right? So what benefit is it to me or to the patient to keep them there until they withdraw and then treat withdrawal when they're just going to go back to drinking again? You know, it's not even safe. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult thing and I don't have the right answers. And there's probably ethicists that could come in here and tell us all the ways we are doing this incorrectly. But alcohol withdrawal is extremely dangerous. We're going to talk about it. It is, has a high mortality even today. So these patients need to go into detox because detoxing from alcohol is very, very hard to do, and it is dangerous. And most acute care settings do not have the resources to do that. So difficult situation. Now, that first type of patient that you mentioned, Mel, someone who doesn't drink all the time but happened to just drink a whole lot and ended up in the ER for whatever reason, they can go home still quite intoxicated as long as they're going home with, say, a parent or a family member who is able to watch them and you feel that patient is able to go home safely. So it's okay. They don't have to be completely sober as long as they have, you know, they're maintaining their airway, they can take PO, and that someone can stay with them while they finish sobering up. Yep. And make sure that you're comfortable that they're sober enough that there's not a potential injury you've missed so that they can walk around and you've checked their neck and all that right. stuff. But they don't have to be perfect because perfect might take three or four or five more hours. Yeah. And I think for most people, the sniff test of when that's sort of safe to go home is that the patient can talk to you, understands what's going on. They can walk without stumbling or falling over. They're holding down at least fluids. That's basically it. They can walk, talk and hold things down. Okay, if you think that they're safe at that point to go home, even though they're not, you know, zero on the blood alcohol concentration level, then perhaps that's the safe thing to do. And if you need to assist that patient with transportation, you certainly don't want to discharge them home if they're just going to get behind the wheel. Chapter 5. Deep Dive. Hey, I'm Rappers. This is Sean North, your friendly toxicologist. Jess and Mel have asked me to weigh in a little bit about ethanol pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics, and some ethanol-related pathophysiology. So ethanol is quite interesting with its kinetics, specifically something called zero-order elimination kinetics, which is different than almost every other medication and drug you ever learned about. Zero-order elimination means that it's a fixed amount of drug that's metabolized over time, and this explains why it can take a long time for someone to sober. Every other medication you learned about, with very few exceptions, follows first-order elimination kinetics, which is a constant percentage over time. So think about a half-life. A half-life means over that period of time, it goes down by 50%. So one half-life goes by 50%, second, 50%, and so on. So much mathematically that after five half-lives, it's essentially zero, no matter if that initial concentration is 200 or 5,000. Now, Jess had mentioned that naive or relatively naive drinkers metabolize at about 15 milligrams per deciliter per hour, where chronic drinkers metabolize at about 30 milligrams per deciliter per hour. So why is this? Well, it'll make sense once we talk about ethanol's metabolic pathway. Ethanol, being an alcohol, is metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase, and it goes to acid aldehyde. Being an aldehyde, that gets broken down by aldehyde dehydrogenase to acetate, and then ultimately that gets broken down to carbon dioxide and water. 
This is important because every alcohol follows this pathway. In fact, before femepazole, the antidote for toxic alcohols, we used to use alcohol as the antidote because if we had the level greater than 100 milligrams per deciliter, alcohol or ethanol being the preferred substrate for alcohol dehydrogenase would not let the ethylene glycol or methanol get metabolized to their toxic metabolites. Now we use femepazole, and of course, hemodialysis may be indicated as well. Isopropanol is the exception. It's an alcohol gets broken down by alcohol dehydrogenase to acetone. But let's get back to this, why do chronic drinkers metabolize more quickly? Well, alcohol dehydrogenase really isn't inducible. So there's alternative pathways. The most important alternative pathway is a cytochrome P450 2E1. And this one is inducible. So someone who's a chronic drinker revs that up, and then they can metabolize much quicker. And there's some other minor pathways, but those are really the two most important ones. I do want to say something about acid aldehyde because acid aldehyde is thought to be one of the mediators of a hangover. So people have a headache, they don't feel so well, abdominal pain, nausea, they might even vomit. Well, disulfiram, which was a medication that used to be used for alcohol use disorder as sort of a negative reinforcement, would block the breakdown of acid aldehyde and people would accumulate acid aldehyde. Now, we don't use disulfiram really anymore for alcohol use disorder, but there are several medications that have a disulfiram-like effect, like metronidazole, some of the older sulfonylureas, some antibiotics. So that's an important thing to be familiar with. And then finally, there's some people with a genetic polymorphism that do not have normal activity of aldehyde dehydrogenase. And so they can accumulate acid aldehyde. And generally, you might see them in the emergency department. It might be a college-age student who never really drank before or goes out and drinks a large amount of alcohol comes in very flush, nausea, abdominal pain, might be hypertensive, not feeling so great. And that could be the reason why that is. The best thing to do is just treat them supportively and then recommend that that person probably stays away from alcohol or drinks in very great moderation. So let's get to the other pharmacokinetic properties. Now, ethanol is very well absorbed. It's a solvent. So it's used, or it used to be used quite a bit in medication. So it gets into the bloodstream fairly quickly. So Almost every dose of alcohol will be absorbed in about an hour. But if someone has food in their stomach, that could slow down the absorption, but it doesn't decrease the absorption. Now, an important thing to know between males and females is that men have alcohol dehydrogenase in a higher concentration in the stomach than females. So for an equivalent dose of alcohol and everybody who has the same BMI, body makeup, a female generally will absorb more alcohol than a male because the males break it down. But then once it gets into the bloodstream, well, it gets distributed fairly well throughout the body and specifically the brain. We talked about the metabolism, and that's important because you cannot, despite what anyone tells you, really increase the metabolism of ethanol. So by giving multiple doses of IV fluids, you're not going to flush it out of the body. It really is one of these tincture of times and just being patient. Now, I don't recommend being aggressive with fluid hydration because the patients often are not dehydrated, number one. Number two, if you put a Foley in, which I would not recommend, they often pull it out because they feel like they have to urinate. But even if they have a condom cath or no cath, what happens is they feel like they have to urinate, they think they're at home, and they usually fall out of the bed. So if they need hydration, that's okay, but don't aggressively hydrate and don't hydrate them thinking you're going to metabolize it. Now, Mel had mentioned a medication that's available outside the United States called metaxidine. Metaxidine accelerates the metabolism of alcohol to acetaldehyde, really doesn't have a role, in my opinion, for 
the treatment of ethanol intoxication, and we don't have it in the United States. Maybe some people around the world use it, but again, I just recommend tincture of thyme no matter where you are. And then as I mentioned earlier, alcohol ultimately gets broken down to carbon dioxide and water. So let's talk a little bit about the pharmacodynamics of alcohol, and this makes sense when you think about alcohol withdrawal. So ethanol affects the two major neurotransmitters, specifically GABA, Yo, GABA which is an inhibitory. So alcohol increases the effect of GABA, and it also inhibits glutamate, specifically at the NMDA receptor, and glutamic acid is a major excitatory neurotransmitter. So if you think about treating alcohol withdrawal, this makes a lot of sense because what do we use? We use benzodiazepines, and if they don't work, we might go to barbiturates. That's because these are GABAergic, and when they don't have enough alcohol, they need to have that increased GABA activity. And then you give them benzos, 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 you give them barbs, it's not working. You say, why is this not working? Well, very often that's because it's the glutamic acid NMDA excitability, which is no longer being suppressed because there's no longer alcohol. So when we look at refractory treatment of alcohol withdrawal, which might include intubation, but the role of ketamine and propofol is often, why does that work in addition to the benzodiazepines? Is because it's that two-prong effect, and that's working specifically at the NMDA receptors. So let's move on to a little bit of pathophysiology. Now, we always have to think about a broad differential when it comes to alcohol intoxication, including toxic alcohols, including trauma, including metabolic derangement. Now, Jess had mentioned beer potomania, which is hyponatremia. So why does this happen? Well, Jess had mentioned this is really a dilutional hyponatremia. And what happens is that these people are drinking a lot, typically beer, and it's got low solutes in it, and they often have a low-protein diet. So ultimately, this results in very low osmoles getting introduced to the kidneys, very low solutes being introduced to the kidneys, and the kidneys says, oh my gosh, it doesn't cross the threshold to even make urine. So it says, we better hold on to this because this is not normal, and then it just causes the dilutional hyponatremia. So if you have somebody that's altered and you can't explain it all from just ethanol intoxication and you get a sodium and it's low, it could be beer potomania. The important thing to know is as you replete them, just be careful because they will start diuresing usually pretty aggressively, but they can overcorrect. So be judicious with your repletion in the beer potomania. The most important, as I mentioned, is really hypoglycemia. So as a toxicologist, where do I see hypoglycemia and ethanol most commonly? This is in pediatric patients, and that's for multiple reasons. But what is the scenario? It's generally there was a party in a house the night before, the parents are still sleeping, the toddler gets up, there's alcohol beverages still laid out, the child drinks it, the parents find the kid either seizing or altered, brings them in, the kid's found to be hypoglycemic. Children don't have large glycogen stores. In adults, you generally only see hypoglycemia in the chronic drinker. And why is this? Well, of course, they have generally a decreased caloric intake. They have decreased glycogen stores because often chronic alcohols don't have great diets, but then also they might have liver disease where they can't store glycogen. And then finally, pyruvate, which is created, is not allowed to be used for gluconeogenesis. And that becomes important when we talk about our next topic, which is alcohol ketoacidosis. So Remember I mentioned the metabolism of alcohol, it went from ethanol to acetaldehyde to acetate. 
Well, you have very large amounts of acetate in chronic drinkers. And what happens is acetate goes to acetyl-CoA, and that's part of the citric acid cycle. And what happens is the pyruvate can no longer be incorporated because the pyruvate's getting shunted to lactate. Now, they're basically in a starvation state. And as Mel mentioned, this is the classic scenario. It's somebody who's a chronic drinker. Most of their calories come from alcohol. Something happens. They start vomiting. They get incarcerated. Something happens. They get into the hospital. And now they're no longer drinking. And now they're in a starvation state. And they come in, and they'll be acidemic. What's important to know is that their ethanol levels might be low or even zero. So you have to suspect that this could be a possibility. So anytime you have somebody who has an increased anion gap acidosis, think about AKA along with everything else you do on mud piles. There's a couple other important things about alcohol ketoacidosis. Is unlike DKA, where the predominant keto acid is acetoacetate, and AKA, it's beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, a lot of institutions are able to measure this. A lot don't. I've worked in both places. It's nice when you have it, but just know that you might not have a very strong, if you dip their urine, looking for ketones because it's beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, there's a couple other clinical pearls that you can learn for differentiating AKA from DKA and even toxic alcohol. First of all, their numbers look bad, but the patient looks pretty good. You look at the patient and you're like, boy, they don't look as bad as their numbers. The pH is not as low as in DKA. Their bicarb, similarly, is not as low as in DKA and definitely not as low as in toxic alcohols. Toxic alcohols, you'll see often single-digit bicarbs. And it often improves, as Mel mentioned, with IV hydration, but you got to give them glucose. That's, that's what they really need. If you just give them IV hydration, they're not going to get better and their acidemia might even worsen. But if you give them IV fluids and glucose, they rapidly turn around. Toxic alcohols will not do this. So those are important things to know. The other thing is, it's interesting, but as they start correcting, beta-hydroxybutyrate actually becomes acetoacetate. So you might see, particularly in urine ketones, that that level is going up. That means that they're improving. They're not actually getting worse. Summary. All right. So let's do some summary here. So pharmacokinetics, the most important thing to know is ethanol follows zero order elimination kinetics. That means a fixed amount over time, not first order, which is a fixed percentage. Remember, chronic drinkers metabolize quicker than non-chronic drinkers, and that's because of not only the alcohol dehydrogenase pathway, but also because that revved up P450 system. Acid aldehyde can accumulate in different patient populations for different reasons. And then remember, when we talk about the pharmacodynamics, that ethanol increases GABA, inhibits glutamate, NMDMA, and then when you think about withdrawal, that all gets flipped out. When we talk about metabolic derangements, always think about hyponatremia, hypoglycemia. Of course, anybody who has altered mental status, we want to look for that. And then alcoholic ketoacidosis. Remember that that's in your differential diagnosis for a metabolic acidosis, easily corrected with IV fluids, glucose. And don't forget that thiamine. Mel did mention about the concern of Wernicke's. If you're concerned, give high-dose thiamine. 100 milligrams is generally not enough. You want to do 300 to 500 milligrams IV. And if they're not improving with those therapies, broaden your differential. All right. Thank you. Chronic drinkers, clinical findings. Let's talk briefly about some of the things that happen in chronic drinkers. We know that obviously this affects multiple parts of the body. It causes liver damage, scarring to the liver, liver congestion, and then failure of the liver synthetic function. 
Okay, so that's increased risk for bleeding, for macrocytic anemia. Patients are also at increased risk for cardiomyopathy, depressed immune system. You got to think about them in the immunosuppressed category. And then on exam, some of the things you might see, asterixis. This is that hand flap. You have the patient, I ask them to put up their hand like they're saying stop. So they have to extend their wrist back and you'll see a hand flapping forward. And that can also be seen with uremia. What are some of the other findings that we see in people who chronically abuse alcohol? So some of the other effects of chronic alcohol ingestion are things like jaundice, obviously. Usually your bilirubin is going to be pretty high, two, three times normal. Spider angiometer. So this, I think, is considered an estrogen effect. It's like where you get this feeding vessel that looks like a spider, and if you press on the middle of it, it blanches the whole thing. It's kind of cool when you see them. Terry's nails. What are those, Jess? I, I don't know what a Terry's nail is. Yeah, so basically most of the nail looks white and opacified, except for the very tip. And the tip of the nail can be like a pinkish color. I wonder how sensitive and specific that finding is. I know. I feel like I've never... <laughs> I, I remember learning it in medical school, and I don't think I've seen it, but I've definitely seen all the other ones, and we have photos of them in Corpendium. Obviously, abdominal distension can be a big one if you've got you know chronic hepatic disease and restructuring, and you've got portal hypertension, and we've got ascites, you'll see that. Labs. And now, what about labs? There's a whole bunch of lab abnormalities you might see in people who use alcohol chronically. What are they? Right. So... They're not going to have a normal liver panel. And if you remember, the AST is usually higher than the ALT. Okay, so it's an AST predominant transaminitis. And their bilirubin can be elevated as well. On their CBC, it's likely going to be macrocytic anemia and thrombocytopenia. And then you could also expect on the chemistry panel, hyponatremia. There's something called beer potomania, where you're basically ingesting so much fluid, so much beer that you get sort of a dilutional hyponatremia. Lipase can go up in the setting of pancreatitis. And then also ammonia can be elevated. And that's something that you'd want to think about checking in a patient who is altered to look for hepatic encephalopathy. So lots and lots of abnormalities that you'll see in patients who are chronically abusing alcohol. But let's go back to the acute ingestion. Acute ingestion. One of the real problems of acute ingestion of alcohol in the emergency department is agitation. And uh, it's a problem outside the immune department as well. It's where all the trauma and interpersonal violence comes from. So somebody comes in, Jess, they're intoxicated, and they are ticked off and they're yelling at you and they're screaming at the nurses. What do you do to deal with that? It sounds like we're past the point of verbal de-escalation, as you've described. So we have some options here. We want to treat with some medications. And general things you could reach for would be benzodiazepines, ketamine, or one of the antipsychotics like haloperidol, or if you have droperidol, those are sort of the options that you would have available. And generally, if they're being uh, violent or threatening people, then you're probably going to want to put them in some restraints as well. Do you have a preference between the different medication options that I mentioned? I think it depends what syndrome they're manifesting. So some people acutely intoxicated are just going to be pissed off. And yeah, you try and give them the turkey sandwich and de-escalate them. And if that's not working, I try to decide, okay, is this just a pissed off syndrome? I might just go <laughs> with benzos just to calm things down. If this is some people get like a form of psychosis and they're really they're sort of seeing things, they're hearing things, then I'll go with the Haldol or the Droperidol. And if they're tearing the emergency department up and they're at risk to themselves or the staff, then ketamine. They are at very high risk. They're flipping the gurney. They're taking swings at people. This is a dangerous situation. I want to get them sedated fast, so I'll go with ketamine. 
I'm with you completely. And oftentimes patients who have psychiatric illness are also presenting intoxicated. And that's, again, when you lean more towards the antipsychotics might give you a little bit more benefit there because there could be more than one thing going on. So yeah, I think it's very situationally dependent. And just remember that they've already got a sedative hypnotic on board called alcohol. You're about to give them another drug. Most of these can also produce further sedation and hypnosis. And so you've got to have your airway stuff ready. You can do everything right and give them a little benzo and they go from agitated to apneic very quickly. Chapter 6. Unique Considerations Unique Considerations is not a typical part of Corpendium chapters, but there are some sort of special syndromes and disease presentations that we need to pay attention to in the topic of ethanol intoxication. So in this chapter, we'll cover alcoholic ketoacidosis, GI hemorrhage, thiamine deficiency, and a little bit on toxic alcohol ingestion. Ketoacidosis. Now let's talk first about alcoholic ketoacidosis. I find this to be a bit confusing because it's, you know, for whatever reason, you got labs on the patient and now you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on with them because they might have acidosis. And then you're looking for reasons of why they could be acidotic. You know, what did they ingest? Did they ingest toxic alcohol? Or is this purely due to their alcohol ketoacidosis? Or are they having a euglycemic DKA? So I think this can be a little bit confusing at times. What do you think is sort of the big picture on alcoholic ketoacidosis? I would say it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's really common. So there's lots of bad things that could cause acidosis in these patients. Like you say, they could have taken some other form of alcohol and they're metabolizing it. And there's lots of bad metabolites and that's making them sick. They could have DKA and they've got pancreatitis and they've taken out their islet cells. So it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. But having said that, it is really common. So the classic scenario is you've got somebody who's using alcohol chronically. They're not taking in calories from normal foods. And they're going on binge and all they're doing is drinking and drinking and drinking. And basically they go into a form of starvation and uh, they get some gastritis and they start vomiting. And now they're not even getting calories from alcohol. So they really are a starving person that comes in who hasn't been eating and they've got acidosis. And the good thing about it is that if you give them fluids and you give them glucose, it tends to go away pretty quickly. But it is, in my mind, a diagnosis of exclusion. Think about it, but make sure you look for other bad causes of acidosis. So for whatever reason, you got labs and they're acidotic and you think this is what's going on. Mel just said it. The key here is fluids and put some dextrose in their fluids. And you're going to hang on to them for a little while until you start to correct this. And my experience is, I don't know what the literature says, but my experience is that they actually clear this pretty quickly. Once you get some fluids and dextrose in there, this goes away over the course of hours, not days. So likely something you can turn around in the emergency department and may not need admission. GI hemorrhage. So GI hemorrhage. Okay, we haven't got time to talk about GI hemorrhage. And there's two forms, I think. There's the, again, the person who's using alcohol chronically that might have uh, ascites and might have portal hypertension and might have big varices, but also just alcohol itself is a real irritant. So you can have gastritis bleeding. So you might need to be admitting this person and getting them scoped or you might just have to treat them supportively. But alcohol really is an irritant. So you can have somebody, again, who's just had a big binge over the weekend, and uh, now they come in and they've puked up a lot of blood. Does that person need a scope if they're not a chronic alcoholic? Probably not. If they become stable and their hemoglobins are fine, it's probably just hemorrhagic gastritis. But sometimes they can bleed a lot and they're going to get scoped. If it's a chronic alcoholic with a lot of bleeding, they can have lots of different places where this blood could be coming from. 
that person probably is going to need a scope, but sometimes they'll just settle down and you don't need to scope them right now. So again, Jess, I think you and I did a C3 on this and it's 17 hours long. Go listen to it over there. Thiamine deficiency. So thiamine deficiency over time can cause Wernicke Korsakoff syndrome. These are two different things. There's Wernicke encephalopathy. That's sort of the acute form. And then Korsakoff syndrome is the chronic form. With Wernicke's encephalopathy, there's a triad. Do you remember this from medical school? The triad of Wernicke's encephalopathy? Mm-hmm. You do? Ataxia, ophthalmoplegia, and what's the other thing? Confusion. That's right. <laughs> the Wernicke's triad. Ataxia, confusion, ophthalmoplegia. If only there was a mnemonic to remember this. It's called Waco. Wernicke's is ataxia, confusion, ophthalmoplegia. With Waco, you remember and yes. you don't have no Right. Now, this is a big deal because this can go on and become irreversible. So this is where you're giving them thiamine and you're giving them a lot of thiamine, not just 100 milligrams you put in a banana bag. We're talking 500 milligrams and then they're probably going to have thousands of milligrams over the next week. So this is an important one to pick up, but I actually can't remember picking it up. I remember thinking people have had this and started the treatment, but it's never classic like this. I'm confused and my eyes are going all over the place and I've got a wide base gate. I mean, so many patients who are chronic alcohol users are going to seem a little ataxic because when we see them, they're intoxicated. So it is kind of hard to pick up. But I would say this is where it actually matters that you did some form of exam and a neurologic assessment at least the follow my finger and look for some ophthalmoplegia, make sure that they can walk. Because if you do pick up any of this, then that's a really important catch. So starting that thiamine at that high dose that you mentioned is really important. Otherwise, over time, it progresses to Korsakoff syndrome. Now, Korsakoff syndrome causes amnesia, confabulation, and they have no insight to the fact that they have this. That's a chronic issue. This is not going to get better with thiamine. Am I right? That's correct. This is a really fascinating syndrome of them just making things up and they really believe it. And I remember in medical school, they brought a patient in with this syndrome and it was really interesting. He told this whole story and then the neurologist like, none of that's true, by the way. And we're like, what? He was really telling us a great story. And there was a study once, and it has since been debunked, but I remember it in medical school, that 50% of the nursing home beds in Australia were taken up by patients who had Corsicol syndrome. <laughs> and we're like, wow, we have an alcohol problem in this country. Toxic alcohol ingestion. Finally, I think it's important to mention toxic alcohol ingestion. There's a whole separate chapter in Corpendium on this. But sometimes patients are drinking and they're reaching for whatever's available to them. And they may not know that they accidentally drank some ethylene glycol or some methanol. And so I just wanted to mention that here, or maybe they just can't tell you because they're too altered to be able to give you a history. So Mel, when should we think about, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but when should we think about this? Let's say you got some labs, what are some clues? So I would say one, they tell you, I was really desperate and I just started drinking everything I could find in the kitchen. Now this is the time to think about it. Second thing is if they've got an acidosis, which is not clearing. The third is they're unconscious. I don't know what's going on. Some people routinely will do an osmolar gap to see if there's unmeasured osmol. So the idea here is that you've got a certain amount of osmolality to your blood and uh, you do the sort of formula and you include alcohol. And after you've done that, there's a huge gap of what's measured versus what's you know there. That could be the cause. 
if they come in and they've got other symptoms, like I can't see things, I've got blurry vision, you're starting to think toxic alcohol ingestion. So they're just some of the things. Treatment. And then the treatment for these people is? Fomepazole. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. They might need dialysis. There's other potential treatments. The treatment is really to consult a toxicologist or call the poison control center and let them help guide you through the treatment. But the the buzzword here, the thing you have to know for the boards, the thing you have to know when you're attending ASCU is fomepazole. That's the usually the go-to treatment. Yep. So this is, again, something that requires another hour discussion. But that person who's metabolically deranged, not acting properly, think about this because this is very treatable. And again, if we miss it for 12 hours because we say, oh, you're just drunk, we can have done some serious damage. So it's part of your continuous revision of the patient. Oh, they had a bit of acidotic. I think it's alcoholic ketoacidosis. A, it's not going away. It's not going away. You should be thinking about toxic alcohol ingestion. Chapter 7. Summary. Let's do a little summary. And before we go to Stuart, what's your summary, Mel? How would you sum this up in two sentences? So my summary of all this, Jess, is the two big things. One, check their glucose. Two, think about trauma in particular. Occult trauma, it's a great analgesic. That's where I've made my mistake lots and lots of the time. I've missed the occult trauma. So this is a high-risk group. Check them, recheck them, check them again. It's time for Big Stew with a little review. You know, it's amazing that decade after decade, other drugs come and go. They come in favor, they fade away. But alcohol, ethanol abuse seems to be the one enduring thing it's a line that runs through my whole career of emergency medicine from the very beginning in rural Canada to my international work and to the present day. It's just ubiquitous. And it almost seems like alcohol-related disorders and emergency medicine go hand in hand. So you really, really have to become very familiar with this particular drug. I should also add that because alcohol is so important and prominent in emergency medicine, Corpendium has divided its treatment into three separate chapters. In this chapter, we're dealing with alcohol intoxication. We deal with alcohol withdrawal and alcohol use disorder as an entity in separate sections. Ethanol is dangerous to humans, and it's dangerous acutely as well as chronically. And I really see these as two different clinical issues. In the acutely intoxicated patient, you really have to be careful that you're not missing injuries. Missing trauma is the big pitfall. And this can be addressed by a careful and repeated physical examination. And I want to emphasize the nuance there, because a lot of times people come away with the take-home message that, oh, the patient's got alcohol on board, I need to do a CT scan, that type of thinking. And I think that's a little bit of the wrong message. For those acutely intoxicated patients, especially that are younger, they're not necessarily ravaged by the lifelong effects of alcohol abuse. They can safely be reassessed re-examine most of the time. Obviously, if they come in comatose after a big accident, you're not making decisions based on alcohol levels. You're scanning their head, of course. But if they're talking to you and they're drunk, a careful exam and a reassessment is almost always a more efficient and better stewardship of resources than going ahead and imaging and scanning everything. So I think that's an important point to make. Now, please contrast that with patients that have chronically used ethanol for years and years and years, and they have fragile organs. They have fragile brains that are susceptible to subdurals. They have fragile bones that are susceptible to fractures. They are not perceiving pain as well because they have 
neuropathy from the ravages of alcohol on their nerves. This patient population is different. It skews older, and these are patients that you do have to do more testing on. They're a distinct, fragile, immunocompromised patient population. The second critical point that I want to emphasize is about hypoglycemia. We need to check a blood sugar right away in patients that have altered mental status, and this includes patients that are altered presumably due to alcohol intoxication. Because it wasn't specifically mentioned, I want to point out that hypoglycemia in children is a specific concern. Kids tend to get this with alcohol intoxication, also with certain overdoses like a beta blocker overdose can cause this easily in children. They get hypoglycemic readily, and you have to address that right off the bat when a kid has been into alcohol. And I guess it goes without saying that you're not going to make the diagnosis of alcohol intoxication in an infant or child unless you think about it. And it happens frequently enough, I've seen it several times, that you should, while you're taking the blood sugar of the altered kid, quickly include that in the differential of things that's going through your mind. The last thing I wanted to briefly discuss is the issue of how do we control patients when they're out of control and they're intoxicated with alcohol. Now, this is dealt with in many different areas of corpendium. There's even a chapter on approach to the violent patient, but I think we'd be remiss not to mention a little bit about it here. I think the key is flexibility. The authors of the alcohol intoxication chapter have emphasized benzodiazepines as a first-line agent for behavioral control, and I think that those are appropriate in many circumstances, but just remember, they're not without their risk, the main one being that they further sedate the patient. And so you have to be very careful and judicious about that. You don't necessarily want to turn your acutely intoxicated and uptunded patient into someone that you need to intubate. And so there's a balance there. And consequently, I think that there is room for other agents in there, including the antipsychotics, which might have a benzodiazepine-sparing effect and might be appropriate in some cases where there's psychosis, as well as ketamine, which may have a role in some of the more severe cases. All of these agents have their potential pluses and minuses, and I think the whole clinical picture needs to be taken into consideration when we're giving more drugs to patients that are already suffering from intoxication on one particularly strong one, ethanol. So, ethanol. It's dangerous. Respect it. Do a careful assessment for trauma. Recognize that chronically abusing patients are compromised in many, many ways and fragile. Always check a blood sugar and document a thorough reevaluation before discharge. Dear MRAP, I've actually had the unfortunate experience. Well, it wasn't unfortunate. It was kind of, well, okay, back, back, back. Dear MRAP, you wanted to know what it was like to stick a vodka-soaked tampon up your... Okay, that's a little too graphic. Let's do something else. Dear MRAP, I've actually been involved in... Now it makes it sound like I'm an accomplice. Dear MRAP, you asked about... You know what? It's not important to write in every time you hear something on MRAP, okay? Just sometimes these things don't make it in. I'm just gonna... It's gonna delete it. All right. Dear MRAP, 